0: Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6, and we will read beginning at verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, any time you begin discussing prayer, you find yourself in a difficult situation because none of us can completely comprehend how prayer functions within the mind and sovereign plan of God. Uh, On the one hand, you have the Calvinist view, which in its extreme application says that God is sovereign, so he's going to work out his perfect will and do whatever he's going to do, whether you pray or don't pray. Uh prayer's nothing more than tuning into God's will. It really isn't all that essential in determining God's actions. On the other hand, you have the Arminian view, which in its extreme application says that God's actions pertaining to us are determined largely uh, on the basis of our prayers. In other words, God doesn't do anything unless someone prays. Uh, so you have both extremes. On the one hand, prayer is seen simply as a way to line up with God regarding what he's already determined to do. And on the other hand, it's beseeching God to do what he otherwise would not do. And it's very difficult sometimes to deal with what the truth is, because there are times when we see in scripture that men prayed and it says that God, as it were, changed his mind or his direction and did something that it appeared that he otherwise wouldn't do. And there are other times when God says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. So prayer supports both of those views and holds them, as it were, in tension. Uh, The Bible is unequivocal about God's absolute sovereignty, but it is equally unequivocal in declaring that within his sovereignty, God calls on his people to beseech him in prayer. Uh, to implore his help and guidance and provision and protection and mercy and forgiveness and countless other needs. And so the mystery is difficult to solve. James Montgomery Boyce recounts a story about this particular issue. Uh, he says that at one point in the course of their very influential ministries, George Whitfield, who was a Calvinistic evangelist, and John Wesley, the Arminian evangelist, were preaching together and were rooming together in the same boarding house. And one evening after a particularly strenuous day, the two of them returned to the boarding house exhausted and prepared for bed. And when they were ready, each one of them knelt down beside the bed to pray. And Whitfield, the Calvinist, prayed like this. Lord, we thank thee for all those with whom we spoke today, and we rejoice that their lives and destinies are entirely in thy hand. Honor our efforts according to thy perfect will. Amen. After that prayer, Whitfield rose from his knees and got into bed. Wesley, who had he'd hardly gotten past the invocation of his uh, prayer in that length of time, he looked up from the side of his bed and he said, Mr Whitfield is this where your Calvinism leads you? And he put his head back down and continued to pray. And Whitfield stayed in bed and went to sleep. About two hours later, Whitfield woke up. And there was Wesley still on his knees beside his bed, but he was sound asleep. And Whitfield shook him on the shoulder and said to him, Mr. Wesley, is this where your Arminianism leads you? so the, the greatest of evangelists could never resolve the divine mystery of how a human prayer moves the omnipotent divine arm and i'll tell you up front i'm not here this morning to try to resolve that issue solve that problem but what we must know about prayer and what we must be committed to is that the when the bible teaches principles of prayer god expects us to be obedient uh, whether or not we can fathom the mystery of how it works isn't the issue. Ours is not to reason why, but simply to obey. Uh, and so as we come to Matthew 6, 5 to 8, we find here Jesus teaching on prayer that is very basic to this matter of being obedient in our prayer life. And I trust that the Lord will speak to all of our hearts in regard to the lessons of prayer that Jesus teaches in this passage. Now, as you will recall... Jesus has, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, been contrasting true righteousness with false righteousness, in particularly the false righteousness typified by the scribes and the Pharisees. He's already told them that their theology is inadequate in chapter 5. He's going to tell them later in chapter 6 that their approach to the material things of life is inadequate. And here in our passage, he tells them that their religious life is inadequate. And he picks three illustrations out of their religious life to show them their failures. Giving, praying, and fasting, which are all religious activities. As we saw in verses 1 to 4, their giving was hypocritical. And as we will see in verses 16 to 18, their fasting was hypocritical. Uh, But here now, in verses 5 to 8, we see that he says their praying was hypocritical. So every dimension of their spiritual experience involved hypocrisy. They were phonies when they gave. They were phonies when they fasted. They were phonies when they prayed. And Jesus is pointing out that God's standards for his kingdom... Are the genuine standards of true piety not the false standards of their pharisaical pretense and so he tackles them on the matter of prayer and he does so by pointing out that their prayers were defective in their intended audience and in their content and we're going to look at both the audience of their prayer and the content of their prayer but let's begin with the audience of prayer And it has two aspects, the Pharisees' false audience, which is other people, and the true audience, which is God. Now let's look first at the Pharisees' false audience, which is other people. Look again at verse 5. He says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now prayer was a major issue among the Jews. Prayer was a central factor in their practice, uh, in the practice of their religion. They were highly involved in praying. Uh, in fact, the rabbi said, greatest prayer, greater than all good works. Uh, And they also said, he who prays within his house surrounds it with a wall that is stronger than iron. Uh, No religion ever set a higher standard uh, of prayer than Judaism. Uh, They really had a priority place for prayer. But unfortunately, as we have learned in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, almost every dimension of their religious life had been corrupted by their rabbinic traditions. And so most Jews were completely befuddled about how to pray in a way that honored God. So let me tell you how they pray. (coughs) First of all, their prayers became ritualized. Their prayers became ritualized. The wording and forms of prayers were set. And then they simply read or repeated them from memory. They could recite those prayers with almost no attention being given to what was said. They were routine, semi-conscious religious exercise. And that approach replaced the reality of a heart pouring out its pleas to God. Now, that same idea is not uncommon in our day. Some of you probably come out of a Roman Catholic background uh, where prayers were real ritualistic. Uh, Where you were part of a sequential liturgy where at the right time in the right moment you said the right kind of prayer Uh, Some of you may have come from a background where you're familiar with the book of common prayer uh, That is used in many ritualistic churches Uh, I've seen a Catholic mass. I've been to it where the priest was reading from uh, the prayer from a book that was held by one of the altar boys Uh, and he was reading in a dull monotone that sounded like he was almost bored, which he probably was. Uh, So that kind of ritualistic praying is not uncommon right to this day. Now, there are those who say they don't like those kind of little liturgical things, but they have their own little prayer rituals too. You know, you remember teaching your children now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. Uh, or God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Uh, so we can all identify with prayer as a routine, prayer as a ritual. Prayer is simply a repetitious exercise with little or no meaning or significance. Uh, and don't, un, don't misunderstand me on this. There's nothing wrong with writing out your prayers. The Puritans did that all the time. Uh, In fact, several years ago, someone published a little book that was a collection of Puritan prayers. It's titled The Valley of Vision. Uh, It's really excellent, and it will stir your heart to a deeper prayer life. But they didn't pray them repetitiously. Uh, But... Uh, They wrote them out and then they prayed them on some special occasion or time uh, But they didn't use them over and over again Uh, But ritualistic prayers characterize Judaism for example if you were a Jew Every morning uh, every day morning and evening you had to repeat the Shema Uh, the Shema comes from a Hebrew word meaning to hear, it gets its name from Deuteronomy six four, uh, which says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one." And they would recite Deuteronomy six four to nine, and then Deuteronomy eleven thirteen to twenty one, and then Numbers fifteen thirty seven to forty one. They put those passages together and made one long prayer out of it, and every faithful Jew had to recite it every morning and every night. Uh, And after a while, the Jews who weren't so faithful about praying, shortened it to an abbreviated version, which was only Deuteronomy 6, 4. Uh, So, and they said that you had to start your day very early in the morning with this prayer. In fact, one rabbi said that as soon as there was enough light to tell the difference between blue and white or blue and green, you were to pray this prayer. Uh, but if you couldn't do it that early, you had to do it before the third hour of the day, which was 9 a.m. And then in the evening, again, you were to pray, but uh, before you pray it, before you couldn't tell the difference between blue and white and blue and green. Uh, and certainly before 9 p.m. Uh, so every morning and every night, that was the routine. Another formalized prayer they had was known as the Shemona Esra, uh, which means the 18. Uh, it embodied 18 prayers for all different purposes. For example, the 12th prayer started off by saying, Let thy mercy, O Lord, be shown upon the upright, the humble, the elders of thy people Israel, and the rest of its teachers. Be favorable to the pious strangers amongst us and to us all. Give thou a good reward to those who sincerely trust in thy name and so forth. The fifth prayer went like this. Bring us back to thy law, O our Father. Bring us back, O King, to thy service. Bring us back to thee by true repentance. And then it continued. And faithful Jews said all 18 of these prayers every morning, afternoon, and evening. Uh, But of course, they also had an abbreviated version of those uh, if you were in a hurry. Uh, Now, wherever you happened to be, you had to do this. If you were walking along a road, if you were working in a field, if you were in your house, if you were in a synagogue, if you were near the temple, when the time came that you were to do this, you would stop and pray. And you would see people praying wherever you happened to be. It became pretty much standard that there was a prayer at the third, sixth, and ninth hours of the day. That's 9 a.m., noon, noon. And 3 p.m. So when those hours came everyone stopped and prayed. Now this is still a holdover in the Semitic world. If you have ever been in an Islamic country or for that matter Israel, uh, you will see the minarets with the green light on top and at specific times of the day they will play a call to prayer and you will see Arab Muslims pull out their little prayer rug and drop down and go through their prayers. And the Muslims do this five times a day, Uh, dawn, noon, afternoon, sunset, and night. Uh, But like the Jews of Bible times, it is ritualistic. It is set in terms of the words and methods of prayer. And so this was pretty much the routine. Uh, Prayer became a ritualized function. And for the most part, and for most people, it ceased to be a personally meaningful communion with God. Now in this kind of setting, prayer could be given three basic attitudes. First, it could be a true, honest, pure-hearted, loving communion with God. If your heart was right, then you would use that time to glorify and worship God, even though these were prescribed prayers. Uh, You could truly feel the words and think them through and be involved in those prayers with an honest heart. But most people weren't in that category. They usually had one of two other attitudes. The second attitude was that which characterized the Pharisees. For them, these times of prayer became the times when they could parade their piosity, uh, where they could show to others how really holy they were so when the hour of prayer came they put on a demonstration for everyone else to see they meticulously prayed making sure to enunciate every word and syllable properly in order to show others how wonderfully they prayed the third attitude was that which typified those who were neither pious jews nor proud arrogant pharisees they were those who just ran through the words in a perfunctory manner mumbling the words as fast as possible in order to get done and get back to work. Uh, whatever had to be said, they just blasted through it as quickly as possible, kind of like a Catholic say in their Hail, Hail Mary prayers. Uh, so you had two extremes of sin. One was pride involved in prayer. The other was indifference to prayer, missing the whole point. So the first thing, their prayers became ritualistic. The second way in which Jewish prayer life became corrupted was the development of special prayers for special occasions. Uh, They had prayers for everything. Uh, It didn't matter what it was, they wrote a prayer for it. And when that thing happened, you prayed that prayer. They had prayers for light, prayers for darkness, prayers for fire, prayers for lightning, prayers for seeing a new moon, prayers for a comet prayers for rain, prayers for a tempest, prayers for the sea, prayers for the lakes, prayers for the rivers. They had prayers when you received good news. They had prayer when you received bad news. They had a prayer when you got new furniture. They had prayer when you left the city. They had a prayer when you were on the road. Uh, They had a prayer when you entered the next city. That's just a few of the prayers they had. They had prayers for everything, And so you had to find out what the prayer was and learn it. And whenever something happened, you rattled off that prayer that was fitting for that particular event. Now I'm sure that the original intention of the rabbis was to bring everything into the presence of God to make every part of life and every act of nature and every event in the world something that drew them to God. But instead, <clears throat> there became a total commitment to prescribed, uh, predeveloped prayers. One rabbi in reaction to this said he felt God wanted him to invent at least one new prayer every day uh, to keep his own soul fresh. But he was going against the grain of his time when he said that. Okay, the third corruption <clears throat> to their prayer life which we've already mentioned, is that prayer developed into something you only did at certain specific times. Uh, And apart from those times, you just didn't do it. Uh, Now, I believe that prayer is to be like breathing. There aren't certain times. You don't say, it's 12 o'clock, I think I'm going to breathe now. Uh, No, you breathe all the time. You inhale and you exhale, and I think prayer is probably... Illustrated as well in terms of breathing as any other illustration I know of. Prayer is the constant inhale and exhale of communion with God that goes on in the life of a believer all the time. Not to pray is to hold your spiritual breath. Uh, But for them, prayer became something strictly set to certain hours. Uh, We see this even in the early church, don't we? Uh, that how that at a certain hour of prayer, Peter and John and Acts went to the temple to pray. Now, of course, in the church, these people uh, who've come to Christ would be praying all the time, as Acts 4 tells us, but they were still kind of faithful to those hours of prayer. Uh, prayer became for most of the people a useless routine with meaning nowhere beyond some kind of hourly function. Uh, the Muslims have a custom that's very much the same. And there's a story that one Bible teacher tells uh, about a Muslim who was pursuing an enemy and he overtook him. Uh, he was intending to kill him. He drew his knife. He was about to kill the enemy. And the call to prayer came out. And so he stopped. He unrolled his prayer rug he knelt down he prayed through his prayer as fast as he could and then rose up and killed his enemy Um, that's a pretty good illustration of the fact that prayer had absolutely no effect on anything Uh, it was strictly a routine a fourth corruption that crept into the jewish prayer pattern was that they decided it was spiritual to pray long prayers Now I've come across a few evangelical pastors who I think must have bought into the same idea. Um, They they seem to love long prayers and that's what the Pharisees did. In fact, Jesus even said that for appearance sake they offer long prayers. Uh, Folks, there's nothing wrong with a long prayer if it is a sincere prayer. Uh, But there's something wrong with a long prayer when you're trying to impress everyone with your pious sounding words uh, and your great theology and your spiritual fluency or whatever, Uh, there are records of one of the prayers of an old Jewish rabbi in which he included 16 adjectives about God before he ever mentioned his name. It would be like me when I opened class this morning, if I had opened my prayer and said, Oh, great, merciful, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, gracious, holy, righteous, just, kind, forgiving, perfect, loving, infinite, only God. That's 16 attributes tacked on before I ever said who it was I was praying to. Uh, And you can see how it would sound as if I was trying to impress you with my spiritual fluency. Well, that's what they were doing. Uh, one writer who was commenting on worship in Scotland in the 18th century wrote, the efficacy of prayer was measured by its ardor and its fluency and mostly by its length, <laughs> End quote. And the Jewish rabbis used to say that whenever a prayer was long, that prayer was heard. Uh, and the implication was that you've got to spend the first few minutes just getting God's attention. Uh, it's you know it's easy to confuse verbiosity uh, or verbosity however you want to pronounce it uh, with holiness, with fluency, with devotion, length, with sincerity. There was a fifth fault in the Jewish prayer life that was pointed out by Jesus in uh, Matthew six seven, and that's meaningless repetition, patterned after those of pagan religions. You know, the pagan approach to prayer is that you keep repeating yourself until the God gets so weary of hearing you that he does what you want. That's basically it. Just keep saying it and saying it until he gets so sick of hearing it that he finally reacts. Uh, In fact, if you uh, recall the encounter between Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, It says that they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. And so Elijah really gave him a bad time. Uh, He kept mocking them and egging them on, saying, Well, you know, maybe he's in the bathroom. Uh, Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. Uh, Maybe he can't hear you, so you just better yell a little louder. Um, and so they prayed all day long and they kept saying, oh, Baal, answer us. And it says that they kept doing that until the time of the evening sacrifice. And in verse 29 says, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. So hour after hour, they shouted that same phrase, trying to wake up their God, yammering at him until he would finally do something. And so the Jews had picked this up and they were repetitiously calling on God. Now I've heard people do the same thing today. Let me get on my soapbox for a moment. They'll pray. Oh Lord hear us. We ask you to heal Betty Lou. Oh Lord hear us. Please heal Betty Lou. Please Lord hear us. Heal Betty Lou. And they just go on and on and on that way. Saying the same thing over and over and over again. Or they'll say, Father, we need you to do such and such. And Father, we need this or that. And Father, please take care of this. And Father, do this other thing. They constantly repeat the word Father in their prayers. Uh, It becomes a filler word that they stick in anytime they pause while they think of the next thing they're going to say. Now, I'm not saying their heart isn't right before the Lord. I'm sure that most of the time it is. But that pattern of of prayer is certainly distracting. To those that are listening uh, and praying with them uh, so if you have fallen into that habit try to break it please um, you don't or you don't you didn't talk to your own father that way you know uh, you probably called him dad or daddy father papa and you didn't use that title two or three times in every sentence uh, you can certainly refer to God as your father because he is but also use some other names and titles for God, such as Lord or or Gracious Master or whatever. So let me get off my soapbox with my personal pet peeves for a moment. Uh, I'm well aware that many of you are probably sitting there right now wondering, do I pray like that? Um, has Bruce heard me praying and he's talking to me? Um, no, I'm not referring to anyone in this room. Uh, It's just uh, an observation I've made through the years, and I find it distracting when someone is praying publicly like that. Uh, It's repetitious, and they probably even aren't aware that they're doing it. Uh, Another example of meaningless repetition is when we pray the exact same prayer of thanksgiving over every single meal we ever eat. Uh, I've been just as guilty as everyone else, um, and I've tried very hard to change it up some. Uh, Why? because when I pray that way it's not from the heart it's just mechanical repetition of words but the worst fault that the Jews committed in their prayer life the sixth fault was that when is that which Jesus mentions here in verse 5 they prayed so that they may be seen by men not heard by God that's the major fault The other faults and corruptions that we've mentioned are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but got carried to extremes and used in meaningless ways. But this fault was intrinsically evil because it is both came from and was intended to satisfy pride. Notice that it says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Now, Jesus had stopped there. We'd say, wonderful. They love to pray but the question is why did they love to pray did they love to pray because they love god did they love to pray because it ushered them into communion with his blessed presence why do they love to pray they didn't love to pray for a good reason they loved to pray to be seen by men the word translated may be seen means to be made visible to reveal to bring to light to shine they wanted to be visible and to shine forth their supposed piety to the crowds that passed by. Now that was the wrong motive. And that's what Jesus wants to deal with here, the motive of our prayers. We may never unscramble all the mystery of prayer, but we can certainly deal with the issue of the motive as the Lord does here. Our prayers are not to be offered to men, but to God. Have you ever prayed a prayer in a group setting? And while you're praying, this thought flashes through your mind. Boy, that was a good way to say that. I bet they like that. Or if someone says amen to something that you said when you were praying, you start thinking, yeah, that was rich, wasn't it? Let me see if I can impress you some more don't tell me you haven't done that I know better you're filled with pride just like me Um, and if you're thinking Bruce I don't pray in group settings my question is why not why not and the answer is you're afraid that your prayers won't sound pious and spiritual enough again that's pride that's pride one form is simply responding to the approval that others have given and the other is fearful that no one will approve. We're all guilty of allowing our pride and, uh, to control us or seeking the approval of others to control us. You see, there's something you need to understand about prayer. You must learn this. Prayer is not so sacred that Satan doesn't invade it. If you never learn anything more out of this text learn that there is no holy ground that Satan doesn't try to get in on you would think that when I have my deepest devotion and when I walk into the throne room of God and commune with him in his holy presence that I really wouldn't have sin biting at my heels but I do sin will dog you right into the throne room of God Pride follows us into the very presence of God, and it's so sad that it does. In those quiet moments when we would enter his presence and worship him in purity, we find ourselves being tempted to worship ourselves. I don't think anyone expressed this idea any better than D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is a long quote, but it's good. Let me read it. He says, quote, We tend to think of sin as we see it in rags and in the gutters of life. We look at a drunkard poor fellow and we say, there's sin. But that is not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of sin, you must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there on his knees in the very presence of God. Even there self is intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself and to really be worshiping worshiping himself rather than God that not the other is the true picture of sin the other is sin of course but there you do not see it at its acme you do not see it at its essence or to put it in another form if you really want to understand something about the nature of Satan and his activities, the thing to do is not to go to the dregs or the gutters of life. If you really want to know something about Satan, go away to that wilderness where our Lord spent 40 days and 40 nights. That's the true picture of Satan, where you see him tempting the very Son of God, End quote. You see, the point is that there is no sacred ground for Satan. He invades it all. And I believe that the two greatest times of temptation Jesus ever experienced in his life leading up to his death were in the wilderness and in the Garden of Gethsemane. And both times they were times when he was in solitary, isolated communion with his father. And there, it was there in that very private place of his communion with God in prayer that Satan invaded with temptations as strong or stronger than any others in his life. The lesson here for us is don't think that because you've gone to the place of prayer that you've avoided the enemy. He'll be there dogging your footsteps. Sin defiles our deepest devotions and Jesus is saying to the Pharisees you may be praying but your prayers have fallen to Satan's temptation. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. Any comments questions from you before we proceed? The, two places the, garden and the wilderness. Okay. Yes, Mark. just seems sincerity seems to be uh, a real issue for us. Um, sincerity. Sincerity? Yeah. Yeah. It does. And Satan knows no place that he won't go. Even in our prayer life. Now Jesus says, you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray. Now the issue is not that they were standing when they prayed. Because standing was the normal Jewish posture of prayer. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament teaches three prayer postures. First, kneeling. In Daniel 6.10, we find that Daniel opened his window and knelt on his knees and prayed. Second, they prayed while lying prostrate, prostrate, uh, totally out on the ground. David did that when he was begging the Lord for the life of his infant son in 2 Samuel 12. And we even find Jesus doing that in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26.35. But the third posture for prayer, and perhaps as common as any of the others, was to stand. Standing while praying was very common. So that's not the issue, that they stand. And praying in the synagogue is certainly not a problem. Because that was the normal place where a lot of people stood and prayed. Uh, It was an assembly place. It wasn't the temple. It wasn't where the sacrifices were made. It was just where people assembled to hear the reading of the law and have it interpreted and pray together and worship the Lord. And so it was a common place for people to pray. In fact, in a synagogue service, public prayer was customarily led by a male member of the congregation who stood in front of the Ark of the Law and prayed a man could easily succumb to the temptation of praying in a manner that was designed to impress the listeners, that that is, to use the acceptable cliches, the appropriate sentiments, the resounding tones, the well-pitched fervency, all in a manner to win approval and perhaps even to be thought more highly of than the guy who had led in prayer the week before. Now, I don't think we should be too hard on the Jews of Jesus' day before we examine our own hearts thoroughly. Um, I'm painfully aware of my own capacity for self-delusion and deceit, uh, and I suspect I'm not an isolated case. Almost every man I know who has been asked to lead the congregation in prayer has been tempted in this area. Uh, Now, there are some who come along and say, well, the issue is that they were praying on street corners out in public. But that's not a major issue either. Uh, because as we saw, if you happened to be going down the street and it was time to pray, you stopped and prayed wherever you were. Uh, that was a normal pro- process. You would see Jews praying all over the place. If they couldn't make it to the temple at the third, sixth, or ninth hour, if they couldn't get to a synagogue, it really didn't matter where they were. Uh, they would just stop and pray, and they would stand there and pray very quietly, very unobtrusively, and they would say their prayers, and hardly anyone would notice. That would be a very normal course of life. So that isn't the issue either. However, there's a hint here that something's wrong with their praying, because Jesus changes the word that he used for streets. Back in verse 2, Wherein he talked about giving to the poor in the streets. He used a word which refers to narrow streets or alleys. But here in verse 5, he uses a word for a wide street, a boulevard, a main road. Now that's a hint of something. And he doesn't just say in the streets. Where does he say they pray? On the street corners. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand up in the synagogue and pray and outside on the corner of the biggest intersection in town. Now you're beginning to get the picture, right? There wouldn't be anything wrong with praying at a wide intersection if you happened to be there when it was time to pray. There wouldn't be anything wrong with praying at any place that you happen to be. That's not the issue. The issue is, so that they may be seen by men everything else up to this point could have been alright but the point is that they purposely went out to those places to pray so that others would see how pious they were and what our Lord is dealing with is this when you pray publicly make sure you're communing with God not performing for men that's the point Self-centered prayer to call attention to yourself has no place. Scripture doesn't condemn public prayer. It only condemns self-centered prayer. Now, some people say, well, I don't pray in public. I do all of my praying in private. But you can pray a self-centered prayer in public or in private. If your prayers are all about yourself, Bragging to God how spiritual you are only concerned about what is important in your own life Never concerned about intercessory prayer for others Only saying trite phrases such as Lord, please forgive my sins and Never being truly broken over your specific sins. That is just as phony as if you prayed in public because it's the attitude of your heart That's the point now, there's nothing at all wrong with public prayer. In Second Chronicles 6, Solomon prayed an extended, detailed prayer before all the people. In Nehemiah 9, a group of seven Levites led the people in a wonderful, heartfelt public prayer of repentance. In Acts 4, after Peter and John were arrested and questioned and released, the church met together for prayer, and it says they lifted their voices to God with one accord so public prayer is not abnormal it's the attitude with which we pray so the public prayers of the typical scribe or Pharisee were ritualistic mechanical inordinately long repetitious and above all ostentatious and so Jesus says at the end of verse 5 truly I say to you they have their reward in full he repeats the same thing he said at the end of verse 2 when he spoke about unrighteous giving. Let me remind you that the verb here refers to a commercial transaction that a, where a person receives a receipt for the sum paid in full. So God owes them nothing. They got their reward. The full reward for their self-centered prayer is the human applause that they received from the other people. Every time we succumb to the temptation to pray in a manner so as to receive the praise of others for how wonderfully we pray, or how spiritually meaningful it sounds, how religious we seem to be, we receive the same reward that the Jews received, the human praise we deserve. And that is our full reward. There is no other, and certainly no answered prayer from the Lord himself. So after commenting on the false audience in prayer, then Jesus explains prayer's true audience, which is God. But as early as it is, I'm going to stop right here. Because, number one, it's a great place to break in my notes, and I've got a couple of other things to talk to you about. So before I stop, any comments or questions from anyone? I know I would. Nev- I wouldn't dare call on any of you to close this class in prayer today, because you'd be scared to death that we'd all be critiquing your prayer, right? I know. I'm dreading doing it myself. So, okay, let me stop this for now, if I can.